Good afternoon. Uh, let me also welcome you. My name's Johnny. Uh, we haven't met before. Um, I'm one of the other leaders here at the Globe Church. And uh, it's my joy to open John's Gospel with you this afternoon. Um, so for those of you that haven't been around uh, for the last few weeks, um, you may not be aware that we're currently working through John's Gospel. Um, this is a series that we started about four years ago. And in different steps, different bits, we've been working our way through right from the beginning of John's Gospel um, to where we are today, which is John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. So if you've got your Bibles, do get that open. John chapter 20, um, verses 19 to 31. But just to put this in context, if you haven't been around the last couple of weeks, about three weeks ago or four weeks ago, we saw Jesus dying on the cross. Right? This is the, the crowning moment of Jesus' ministry. He, was, he died on the cross. And then about three weeks ago, we saw his, um, his disciples turn up to an empty tomb. He is risen. Jesus is alive. Okay, So that's the context that we're coming into. We're coming into a day when Jesus has risen from the dead. And I'm going to pick it up um, from John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, which, by the way, is a Sunday. If you've ever wondered why churches meet on Sundays, this is why. Because Sunday is the resurrection day. Until every single week prior to this day in history that we're reading about now, people, God's people used to meet on Saturdays. Saturday was the day of rest. And then Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. So here we are today. On a Sunday, 2,000 and more years later, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Whether you knew it or not, that is why we're here. Sunday is resurrection day. So on that Sunday, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fears of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Uh, let me pray as we get stuck into this. 
Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for this account of Jesus appearing before his disciples. And we pray, Lord, that we would understand it. We pray, Lord, that we would see Jesus this afternoon. Amen. Sometimes in a film or a TV series, characters will do something called breaking the fourth wall. Now, I don't know if you know what that is. It's when, it's when a character sort of takes a break from the, the scene that they're acting in, and they look straight down the lens of the camera, and they either give it a look or they say something, and they address the audience directly. Phoebe Wallerbridge did it very well in Fleabag. Have anyone seen that? Any fans? Yeah, big fans of Fleabag. Love that. Now, John sort of does this in verses 31 and 30 and 31 here. Right? This, he, address, he addresses his audience directly. Did you see what he said? Jesus did many other signs, which were not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may have life in his name. John takes a break from describing the narrative of Jesus appearing to his disciples to address the audience directly, to look them in the eye and say, I've written these things down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Why does he do it here? Why, why does he say this thing here? He's talking about everything he's written down. Why wouldn't he put this at the very end or even at the very beginning? It seems strange to put it kind of just sort of 80% of the way through the book. Well, I think it helps us to understand when we see when else he's done it. He's done this one other time in John's Gospel. I don't know if anyone has noticed that as we've been working through it. But if you flick back one page, in chapter 19, verse 35, he does it again, right? So this is when Jesus has died on the cross, and he describes the scene, and he says there was a man who put the spear in Jesus' side and outflowed blood and water separated. And in 9, verse 35, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and testifies so that you may also believe. Right? So there's two stages of John's gospel in this latter part here where John breaks from the narrative and he says, you've got to believe this. And it's when Jesus died and it's when Jesus rose again. There are two things that John says. He looks at the audience and he says, you've got to believe it. John died, Jesus died, and he rose again. Because John is telling us that if we understand those two facts, if we understand that Jesus died and rose again, that is the key to unlocking the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one. That is the key, the final piece of the jigsaw that will make us truly see that Jesus is the promised one, the Son of God. I'm a massive fan of a show called Question of Sport. And on Question of Sport, there's a round called Mystery Guest. Does anyone know the round Mystery Guest? We've got any fans of Question of Sport? Right, so what happens is they get a famous sports person and they sort of dress them up in various disguises and get them to like do something silly like go temping bowling or something. And you get this sort of one minute long clip and show it slowly but surely, the guest gets revealed a little bit more. Like you, first of all, you might only see the hand and then you see an ear and then you see an eye and the, the teams have to buzz in when they realize who it is, right? And at the end, there's a shot where they take off their costume and you finally see them in all their glory. Who is it? Oh, it's David Beckham. Wonderful. Well, John's telling us here, if we understand that Jesus died and he rose again, then we will see clearly 
that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he says, you've got to believe it. Did you see it in 30 and 31? You might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We live in a world that tells us that it doesn't matter what you believe, just make sure you keep it to yourself, right? Like people's, you can believe whatever you want. You do you, I'll do me, but let's not, let's not argue about it. Let's all just believe our stuff. It doesn't matter what you believe. That's what the world tells us, right? Oh, John's having none of it. John says that what you believe is the most important thing because if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, by believing, right at the end, by believing, you might have life in his name. Believing that Jesus is the Messiah is the difference between life and death. That's what John's saying. He's saying the stakes are so high. You've got to see this clearly. You've got to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And the way that we will understand is if we look at him in his resurrected glory. So here, as we look at this passage, as Jesus appeals to his disciples, we're going to see that Jesus is the Messiah. And I don't know if you're familiar with the term Messiah. I don't know if you know what it means. But the Messiah is the one that the God's people have been waiting for. It's been promised for centuries. The Messiah is the one they've been waiting for. The victorious king that's going to lead them to glory. The promised savior that's going to redeem them and buy them out of slavery. God's people have been promised a Messiah for centuries and centuries and centuries. And here we see, clear as day, Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. And we're going to see that in different ways. There's four different ways that we're going to see that Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. He's the promised king, the victorious king. He's the one with the wounds that heal. He's the prince of peace, and he's the son of God. That's what we're going to see as we dig through this passage. So first of all, Jesus is the victorious king. The Israelites have been waiting for a king for a long time. God's people have been waiting for a victorious king. right? A king, someone who is going to lead them into battle, go to battle with the enemy, and then return victorious to rule over them. That's what they've been waiting for. I'm going to flick back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Don't worry too much about getting there. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, God describes what this king is going to look like. He says, the Lord declares, the Lord declares to you, this is the word to David, the king of Israel, the Lord declares to you that he will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you, and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will, who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, God says to David, there is a king that's coming, and he is going to have an eternal throne. Okay? Now, the thing is, if you're going to have an eternal throne, this is a different sort of king, right? So the Israelites are waiting not for a king who's going to guard their territory, not a, not a territorial king, but an eternal king. And if you're going to be an eternal king, you need to be victorious over the eternal destiny, right? The king who is going to represent Israel 
is going to be one who's going to wage war against the enemy that's fighting for the eternal destiny of God's people. That's the king that Israel are waiting for. Someone that wages war against the enemy that's fighting for the eternal destiny of God's people. This isn't a nationalistic claim. This is about eternal reigning and glory of a king. And so what's this got to do with this passage that we just looked at, this appearing of God to his disciples, Jesus to his disciples? Well, as Jesus appears, this is the first time that they've seen him since he was on a cross, right? Just two days ago, Jesus was hanging on a cross. Not a normal place for a king, but he was wearing a crown, not a crown of diamonds and gold, but a crown of thorns. Right, so Jesus, the king, was hanging on the cross, and he went into battle with death. He went into battle with death, and here he comes, having fought death and won that battle. He emerges the other side of the grave, and he stands victorious as the one who has conquered death. Now, you see, through the Gospels and through the Bible, we've seen that Israel's biggest enemy isn't Assyria or Babylon. The enemy of God's people, the biggest enemy of God's people is, is death. Death is the punishment that we deserve. It's the punishment for sin. And here Jesus stands victorious, having gone to battle with death and reigning for eternity. That's what we see in the resurrection. We see the victorious king. So we see the resurrected Jesus as the victorious king who has won the eternal battle with death. Next we see this king, this Messiah with healing wounds. The wounds that heal. God's people are waiting for a Messiah with wounds that heal. In Isaiah chapter 53, we see another prophecy of, of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, this promised Messiah, the one that is going to come and save God's people, is going to have wounds that heal God's people. By his wounds we are healed. And do you see what Jesus does when he appears to his disciples? Look at verse 20. After this, he showed them his hands and his side. He showed them the nail marks in his hand and the spear marks in his side. And you can almost hear him say, I was pierced for your transgressions. I was crushed for your iniquities. The punishment that brings peace was placed upon me. And by these wounds, you are healed. You see, as Jesus has risen from the dead, he reveals to his disciples that he is the one with wounds that heal. And you see, this isn't just an abstract concept, right? We sometimes, sometimes when, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to this idea of, of the death and resurrection, it can feel quite abstract and out there. But what that passage in Isaiah shows us and what we see here is that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for your sin, for our sin. There was a substitution that took place. The nails in his hands 
were for our transgressions and our iniquities. The things that break down the barrier, break down the relationship between us and God. And Jesus, when he died, was pierced and crushed to destroy those things. And now he stands in glory, living proof that he is the Messiah with the wounds that heal. He's the victorious king. He's the one with wounds that heal. And he is the prince of peace. He's the prince of peace. Again, flicking back to Isaiah, chapter 9 this time, verse 6. We see, a set, we see something that we'll hear a lot of this over Christmas time, right? This is a classic Christmassy phrase. Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. This is the Messiah that we're expecting. This is the Messiah that God's people are waiting for. Unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Messiah that God's people are waiting for is the one who will bring peace forever, the Prince of Peace. Now, we have, a, we have quite a shallow view of peace, I think, in this world. I think in, in our culture today, we kind of think of, um, oh, we live in London, it's busy, there's lots of kind of sirens around and people doing roadworks and things like that. And it's just lovely to get out to the countryside for some peace and quiet. Don't you feel that? Don't you want to get away for a bit of peace? We have a very, very tranquil view of peace. I wonder if you ask our brothers and sisters in Ukraine what they think peace looks like or Myanmar, or Ethiopia, or Yemen, or any of these countries around the world that are currently torn apart by civil war. I wonder if you ask them, what does peace look like for you? I don't think they would talk about birds singing and a walk by the sea. Peace is the end of conflict. Peace is when all of the war and the destruction that comes with war come to an end, and it's settled, and there is wellness, and there is goodness. And look at what Jesus says when he, when he appears to his disciples. He says, peace be with you. And he's not talking necessarily about the end of physical conflict. He's talking here about soul conflict. The word is shalom, and it means like soul wellness, completeness. You will be perfectly settled and content and peace. Shalom to you. And he says that three times. He says it to the disciples when he first meets them. And then he says it to Thomas again. He is the one that is bringing peace to the world. The promise here is that we will know our Father, that we will know perfect unity, that our souls will be restored one day if we're believing in Christ if we're believing that he is the Messiah. Later in, in the New Testament, um, Paul writes in the book of Corinthians that at, because Jesus rose, one day we will also rise. So here, as Jesus appears to his disciples, this is a sign of a promise that this peace that he's offering is not just a worldly peace that we're going to see. It's not just about calming fears. It does calm fears. Do you see the the disciples, they go from being terrified of the Jews, locked in a room, 
to a place of being overjoyed. It can calm fears. It can bring an end to anxieties. But that's not just what it's about, right? As Jesus rose, Paul tells us in Corinthians, so we too can expect to rise. And this peace that he's offering is not just a worldly peace, but it's an eternal unity with our Father in heaven. He's the Prince of Peace. One day, just as Jesus rose, we will rose. If we believe that he is Messiah, the Messiah, we will have life in his name. He's the Prince of Peace, and he's the Son of God. The Son of God. Jesus has made some outrageous claims throughout John's Gospel. Right? Loads of times he said, I and the Father are one. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If anyone is to know the Father, if they're going to get to the Father, they're going to come through me. He makes all these sorts of outrageous claims. And I'm a big believer of the fact that if you make an outrageous claim, you have to back it up. Right? I think I've told this story before. At university, me and my friends, we used to play a game called Eyebrows. Okay. Eyebrows is a very, very simple game. Right? If you make an outrageous claim, you have to back it up. And if you can't back it up, you lose an eyebrow, right? Because if you don't back up your claims, you look like an idiot walking around with one eyebrow around campus. And we really lived by this. It was important, right? You've got you've to do it. You've got to back up your claims. Now, Jesus has made many claims to being the Son of God. Multiple times, he's referred to God as his Father. He said, I am one with the Father. And he's done many things throughout John's gospel that point to the fact that that can be true. Seven signs in the first part of John's gospel. He heals the efficient son, turns water into wine, heals the paralytic man, fed 5,000 people, walked on water, gave sight to the blind, raised Lazarus from the dead. All these things point to the fact that it must be true that Jesus is the son of God. But here we see Jesus standing, having, having risen from the dead. And that is proof that Jesus is the Son of God. There is only one person who has authority over life and death. There is only one person who can go into conflict with death and emerge victorious. And that is God. And so Jesus here, as he stands victorious, having risen from the grave, proves that he is the Son of God. So here we have it. We have Jesus the one that we've been waiting for, the victorious king, the one who has fought death and risen so that he can have an eternal throne to lead God's people to glory. He's got wounds that heal. Sin bears scars. We all feel that. We feel the way that sin tears apart families. We feel the way that sin takes us away from where we want to be. He has wounds that have healed those scars. He's the prince of peace that brings the promise of perfect unity with the Father for eternity. And he's the son of God. God on earth. He's the one that we've been waiting for. And I wonder if, for those of us that aren't Christians, that haven't met Jesus before, I wonder if he might be the person you've been waiting for. You might not call them the the Messiah, but who, who are you waiting for? Perhaps you're waiting for someone that sees all of your flaws and your insecurities and loves you so much that they would go to a cross to die for you. And they love you irrespective 
of anything that you've said or done in the past. Maybe you're waiting for someone like that. Perhaps you're looking for someone that will carry your burden. Life can be anxiety-inducing, right? There's loads going on. We all walk through life with so many things every day. We carry burdens. We carry guilt. We carry worries. We carry stresses. Perhaps you're looking for someone who says, come, give me your burdens, and I will take them from you. Perhaps that's who you're looking for. Perhaps you sense that there's something not quite right in this world, and you see that there's brokenness, and you see that there's pain and there's sorrow, and, and your worldview can't explain it. Perhaps you're looking for someone that can explain the author of creation, that can introduce you to the, the person who created the world, who can make your relationship right with the creator and the sustainer of the world. Perhaps that's who you're waiting for. I don't know if you are waiting for Jesus or if you know that you're waiting for Jesus. But God's people, Israel, have been waiting for Jesus for 2,000 years. And perhaps you're waiting for him today. So what does this mean for us? Okay, so Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. He's risen. He's victorious. He promises unity with the Father. He promises peace. And what does this mean? Well, we have a choice right? We have a choice. We can be believers, or we can be will not believers. And I use that word deliberately. It's not just unbelievers, it's will not believers, because we today have all met Jesus Christ. We've seen it in the Bible. We've seen him risen. We've seen the nails in his hands. And we can choose to be believers, or we can choose to be will not believers. And if we're believers, we've seen it already. There is life for eternity. But look at Thomas. Look at how Thomas reacted when he heard the news. Unless I see the nail marks in my hands and put my finger where the nail, sorry, in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Thomas, in this moment, is a, is a will not believer. He refuses. His heart is, his heart is hard. And I think Thomas sometimes, I know, I know there are a number of us who hear the story of Thomas and we think, oh, thank goodness that there are people out there who, who doubt. There are people out there who struggle. And can I just say, there are people out there who doubt and struggle. Every single one of us doubts and struggles. Thomas isn't the only person that has doubted and struggled. I, many times in this last couple of weeks as I've been preparing this sermon, have seriously doubted the claims that Jesus makes. But in that moment of doubt, we have a choice, and we can choose to believe. We can choose to read the words that John gave us so that we might believe. Or we can say, I will not believe. And I beg you, don't be like Thomas. Don't be a will not believer. Don't be like someone who sees the nails in Jesus' hands, who's told of the nails in Jesus' hands, who's told of the promise that Jesus has to offer, and says, I will not believe it. It matters too much. Because by believing, we might have life. It matters too much. We cannot be will not believers. But look at what Jesus does. Even when Thomas says, I will not believe, even when he turns his back on Jesus and says, I cannot believe it. I've, I've followed his ministry for three years. I know exactly what he's done. I know his claims. I know him as well as any one of you. Look at what Jesus does to Thomas, who has rejected him so blatantly. 
Look at the gentleness of Jesus in this moment. In chapter, in verse 26, Thomas was with, uh, a week later, the disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus appeared among them. And again, he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, come. Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus says to Thomas, stop doubting. Stop being a will not believer and believe it. And just and believe me. In Jesus' generosity, his gentleness, his grace, although Thomas has said he will not believe, he goes to him and he shows him everything he needs. He puts it in front of him. He says, come on, believe. Because believing is too important. There is life to be had. So we've got a choice. We can be believers or we can be will not believers. And I'm begging you don't be a will not believer. So let's believe and let's see what happens if we're a believer. If we go back up the passage, to those who believe, the disciples who saw the Lord, they saw the Lord and believed who he was, right? So they saw Jesus. They saw that he is resurrected. And by saying they saw him, they believed him. And Jesus said, once again, peace be with you. And then he sends them on a mission. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So Jesus gives the believers a purpose, a mission, to go and tell the world that he is risen from the dead. That's what Jesus sends them to do. Just as the Father has sent me. We know what, how the Father sent Jesus because it happened earlier in John's Gospel. He sent his Son to glorify the Father. So just in the same way as Jesus was sent by God to glorify the Father, we are sent by Jesus to glorify him. We go out and we show the world Jesus Christ. So as believers, there's a joyful response. And of course they're overjoyed. It's the best news in the world. Imagine you've been waiting for thousands of years. Your people have been waiting for thousands of years. And here you see the victorious king, the prince of peace, the ones with wounds that will heal you and make you right with God. And they're overjoyed. And they go. And they go to make the world see Jesus. And just finally, that, that verse, verse 23, um, I think some people disagree on, on bits of this. But I think it's pretty clear. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus isn't giving them sort of divine power to forgive. Forgiveness is through the blood of Christ. And in the same way that I can stand here to say today and say, you are forgiven if you trust in Jesus. These disciples are being told by Jesus, go and tell people they're forgiven if they trust in Jesus. So what are we to do? We're to believe. These things were written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Will you believe it? Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We pray that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And Lord, we trust that by believing, we will have life in the name of Christ. We thank you so much that Jesus rose again, that he rose in glory, that he defeated death, he defeated sin. And Lord, we pray that we would trust that and live for that. In his name, amen.